Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. We hope that you're all having a good December so far. Um, We are going to get right into this episode, and we hope that you enjoy it. I'm hosting Jeremy Skipper as we talk about uh, a book that he co-authored with Nisha Jr., who's been on the show a couple times. So hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, OnScript listeners. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Jeremy Skipper about a book he co-authored with Nisha Jr., who has been on the show twice in the past. It was about time Jeremy joined us to talk about a book that they've co-authored together called Black Samson, The Untold Story of an American Icon, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Jeremy is professor of religion with a focus in Hebrew Bible at Temple University in Philadelphia. In addition to Black Samson, he's authored the Anchor Bible Commentary on Ruth, Disability and Isaiah's Suffering Servant, Parables and Conflict in the Hebrew Bible, and Disability Studies in the Hebrew Bible. He's also co-edited several volumes. Jeremy, welcome to OnScript. Thanks for having me. I probably should preface by saying, you know, one of those uh, disclaimers, um, the opinions expressed in this podcast are mine, not necessarily those of my co-author, Nisha Jr. Uh, Yeah, that's good, too. Uh, You know, opinions are not uh, endorsements or something like that. Well, uh, I feel like this is long overdue having you on the podcast. You know, we've corresponded back and forth and gotten to know each other a bit over the past couple of years, which has been uh, a real joy. So, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I, I wanted to start, uh, before we get to the book Black Samson, talk, talking about that, I wanted to just touch on your work in disability studies, because you've, you've authored two books on that, co-edited two volumes, you've written numerous articles on the subject, so I figured you'd have something to say, although I know your work has moved on since then. So what, what drew you into that subject area, and how would you introduce a newbie to that field of studies? Yeah, so what drew me into it was actually a class I took at Yale Divinity School. I never actually graduated from Yale Divinity School, but a class I took uh, with a um, scholar named Letty Russell. And uh, she had assigned us a paper about finding our point of entry into feminist discourse. So I, I met with her, you know, came to her office, you know, and I was 22 at the time, said, you know, um, I'm, you know, I'm trying to find my point of entry into, into um, feminist um, interpretation, and I'm struggling with it. Not because I'm opposed, I just generally was looking for like, that point of entry. And so mm. what she did, rather brilliantly, was ask me about myself. Mm. Uh, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, so I had mentioned my interest in Hebrew Bible, mm. and then you know, in passing had mentioned that um, I had been politically active in the disability rights movement. Mm. It's called Disability Rights Movement at the time. And, you know, but I didn't actually make the connections. So this was the mid-90s. Um, and so she sort of shuffled around her office for a minute and pulled, off this, pulled out this volume that was, at the time, new uh, by Nancy Easling called The Disabled God, a uh, former professor at uh, Emory. And she loaned it to me. She said, you know, you might want to, you know, look at this and maybe this could find a point of entry for you. So I looked at the book 
And I had never connected my theological studies with uh, my interest in disability rights Mm. um, until I read that book. And I realized at the time, this is, this is great. Mm. It's very AAR focused. It's very Mm. religious studies focused. Mm. There wasn't anything at the time on the biblical studies side to parallel that. So when I was in graduate school, I found that uh, my AAR already had a program unit set up on disability and SBL had nothing. So I decided to write my dissertation on the character of Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9. Mm. Uh, and that became the first book there. Um, so it really grew out of just, you know, um, unintentionally out of my own uh, lived experience as someone with cerebral yeah. palsy. And it sort of just grew naturally out of there. Before you know it, you know, one book yeah. you know, became another. two books, became three books, you know, so on and so forth. And, um, and then you went on to publish a book on disability and Isaiah's suffering servant. And as someone with an interest in the book of Isaiah, I was just curious if you wanted to highlight one or two things you you discovered about as you were working on the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Yeah. So what, what struck me about the uh, suffering servant, Isaiah 53, I'm, I'm going to assume some basic knowledge mm-hmm. uh, that folks have heard of the suffering servant, Isaiah 53 is go read Isaiah 53. If you haven't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, is that the language used to describe the suffering servant is language associated in Hebrew as well as other cognate languages with disability and illness. Hmm. And this isn't something, a particular controversial claim on my part. Like most commentaries will mention sort of, oh yeah, so this is language of sickness, illness, disability, so forth and so on. Hmm. But yet, when we actually interpret the servant, uh, we interpret him as a non-disabled sufferer. So it's very interested how that goes, you know, how that shift happens. You know, you read the text, it seems to me, disability, mm-hmm. illness, you know, uh, mm-hmm. all those type of things. Uh, and yet the way we interpret him is as a non-disabled sufferer. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering how he became a non-disabled sufferer uh, and what, what were sort of the exegetical moves made. So just to I'll just name a couple and then, yeah. you know, uh, we'll move on. But like, so mm-hmm. for instance, one, uh, one approach to um, the, suffering, uh, ser- the suffering servant is to try to, identify him historically. So who were they talking about when they talked about the suffering servant? Were they talking mm-hmm. about Jesus? Were they talking about Isaiah? Were they mm-hmm. talking about Hezekiah? I mean, the list of candidates goes on and on. Yeah. But almost all of them are usually thought of as non-disabled people. So once they're identified as historical figure X or historical figure Y, they are no longer considered disabled. You know, or another interpretation is to interpret the servant collectively as either Israel or the church or so forth. Yeah. And then when one does that, however, again, the disability sort of falls through through the cracks. And sometimes I like to compare it to the, the woman in Song of Songs. Um, so throughout the history of interpretation of Song of Songs, the relationship with Song of Songs is often metaphorized, the woman is often metaphorized mm-hmm. as the church or Israel. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we stop recognizing the woman as a woman, yeah. Uh, yeah. Even if we uh, even if we go down the metaphorical route, yeah. but somehow with the disability stuff, that the disability image just drops out. So yeah. one of the ways, one of the things that was particularly interesting in that book was trying to figure out how we moved from a servant who has disabilities to a non-disabled sufferer, and why people are so invested in maintaining the idea that the servant was not disabled. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's what that book uh, sort of looks yeah. at. And and I have to say, I you know that was something that really opened my eyes. You know, when my assumption in coming to Isaiah fifty three is that this is someone who was able bodied, and then things happened to them. The, um, some kind of uh, physical suffering that they endured. And I think probably for Christians, at least, part of what's at stake is just wanting to sort of maintain the parallel with Jesus uh, or the prefigurement of Jesus. Um, but we it, it led to a really fascinating discussion in, in our Isaiah class when I taught it about the Isaiah servant as a disabled person and all the implications of that. Really interesting. Yeah, I think um, just, just on that, like I think something that's sometimes lost at least would reaction to that book is I'm not saying one can't, yeah. you know, interpret one as, you know, interpret the servant as um, related to Jesus or as related right. to other yeah, uh, yeah. figures. Um, but, but yeah, the, it seemed to me that a close reading of the poem suggests that there might've been physical abuse. They might, they might be describing physical abuse, mm-hmm. but the uh, initial reaction that might be a catalyst for the physical abuse mm-hmm. He's already disfigured, you know, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, uh, yeah. In yeah, great. Well, we could probably talk about that a lot more, but I want to move on to Black Samson, again, which you uh, co-authored with Nisha Jr. Why Samson? And and who is Black Samson? Yeah, so why Samson? Um, part of it was out of a, when we sort of first started researching the book, was out of a desire to see where you could find some more complex, contested viewpoints. If one, if one is going to make a comparison to utilize biblical figures in uh, discussions of race and racial inequality in America, mm-hmm. where could you find sort of a more complex, uh, contested figures? Oftentimes, people go immediately to Moses. Yeah. You know, so uh, Moses is well, you know, is, uh, is well uh, documented in that regard. The oftentimes, though, with Moses, and just not to say that Moses is not a complex figure, but oftentimes the way that Moses is presented in those discourses is as leading the people to liberation, mm. as you know, getting them out of Egypt. Uh, with Samson, there's not an easy solution to Samson's story. You know, he dies. You know, uh, I, I think at one point uh, we mentioned uh, the line, like, the story doesn't end with with people on the other side of uh, the Red Sea uh, singing a song, or it doesn't yeah. end with a future king killing a, a Philistine giant. And we thought in some ways, as we dug into the research, we found more and more that the complexities of Samson's story provided a unfortunately appropriate analog for uh, the hopes and horrors of race and race, uh, racial inequality in the U.S. And just as we did the research, folks just kept returning to Samson over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, and, and your book, uh, of course, unpacks this black Samson tradition. Where does, where does that come from? You know, the, where did you first see the idea of a black Samson emerge? And, and what do you even mean by that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, like, one would think, you know, one reads the story of Samson, as I did for most of my life, mm-hmm. um, one reads the, Sam- the story of Samson, and, you know, issues of race don't jump off the page. No. You know, and even even traditions, like, you know, this isn't like Hagar, mm-hmm. um, or this isn't like other characters, you know, this isn't like, the you know, Song 1-5, and, you know, uh, I am black and beautiful. 
Um, you know, uh, the, you know, the text itself doesn't seem at least at first glance to Mm -hmm. invite a racialized reading. What, so what we found is a couple of different things. On the one hand, there's this one little verse that's very easily overlooked. It's a Judges 16.21. And it's after Samson um, is captured by the Philistines, after he's blinded. Uh, the verse says that he was uh, in the Philistine prison and he was, he was uh, grinding in the mill. In other words, like he was engaged in forced labor. And so the, very early on in the U.S., um, early 19th century, folks started to identify Samson with issues of slavery and, you know, and then his death as a resistance, whether it was a good strategy or not, another issue that they debated, but, you know, <laughs> as, uh, as resistance. Now, they didn't necessarily at first, it's interesting, they didn't necessarily at first uh, identify Samson himself as a black man. So the connection with slavery was actually made fairly early on. Um, and it was only gradually over time that he became not only, um, the Samson story was not only um, utilized in reference to resistance to slavery, but eventually sort of over time, Samson himself became identified as a black Samson right. uh, figure. Yeah, I, I thought that was fascinating. Um, w- one of the things I really liked about the way that you wrote the book is is that as Samson, the biblical figure, was received into various traditions and, and um, referred to in poems and literature and uh, so on, that that different writers and speakers and artists activated different parts of the biblical story that I hadn't really thought about before. So um, before we get too far into that, though, maybe if you could just give listeners a quick sketch of Samson's, like the super condensed version of Samson's life so that we have that in our minds as we're talking about him. And then we'll talk about some of those ways that Samson is received. Oh, yeah. So Samson, the entire Samson story is just four chapters mm-hmm. uh, in uh, Judges 13 through 16. Um, and there's actually, aside from a list in, uh, in Hebrews, uh, sort of a laundry list of biblical heroes, mm-hmm. there's actually no other mention of Samson in the Bible. Um, mm-hmm. So first of all, we just say like, within the Bible itself, Samson doesn't get the same amount of attention as say Abraham or mm-hmm. Moses or Sarah mm-hmm. and so forth. So it's actually a super short story. And uh, it starts out with Samson's birth being announced by an angel to a mother who had previously not had children and was thought not to be able to have children. And he's declared a, um, um, a Nazarite from birth. And then he, it said that at the time, it said that he will begin to deliver the Israelites from under Philistine oppression. Yeah. Um, now, begin doesn't guarantee he'll deliver them. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I thought that detail was really interesting. I mean, that one word carries a lot of significance then for how he was received in later traditions. Yeah, 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 exactly. We'll get to that, you know, yeah. and, but yeah, I mean, so like, you know, if we stop and think about that, you know, when Samson dies, he doesn't deliver the Israelites from Philistine oppression, mm-hmm. unlike many of the other judges. In fact, you no, know, in Sunday school, we learned that, you know, uh, David killed Goliath mm-hmm. um, in uh, 1 Samuel 17. So, you know, the, the, uh, Israelites will, were under the Philistines' thumb, so to speak, for a long time after, yeah. uh, after Samson uh, died. So, he, you know, um, so he's born. Uh, it, a, a brief verse at the end of Judges 13 says he grew up. 
Um, and then in, in 14, he becomes interested in a uh, Philistine woman, Philistine woman who's not named, but she's from the town of Timna. He marries her, um, but there is some uh, agitation between him and the Philistines. Samson ends up telling some riddles that the Philistines can't understand. So they get his first wife to, I should say his first wife, his only wife, to get the riddle from him. Uh, Samson gets mad, kills some Philistines, the Philistines retaliate, things escalate. And finally, you know, the Philistines try to kill him several times. Finally, in Judges 16, Samson falls in love a woman whose ethnicity is not identified, often thought mm. of as Philistine, uh, uh, yeah. named Delilah. Yeah. And uh, now the, the text is really interesting because Delilah is the only person that the text specifically says Samson loved. Mm. It never says Samson loved the, the woman he was married to in mm. Judges 14. Never says Samson loved the uh, sex worker that he was involved with mm. in uh, Judges 16, 1 through 4. But mm. Samson loved Delilah. Mm. Now, it doesn't say Delilah loved Samson back. Uh, <laughs> and Delilah is put into a rather compromising position where the Philistines sort of make her an offer she can't refuse mm -hmm. uh, to get Samson's uh, strength from him. So she tries on, uh, on four different occasions. The first three, however don't involve love. She asks him, you know, what's the secret to your strength? You know, he, he plays some games with her, you know, uh, mm -hmm. some, you know, uh, you could, if you tie me up, if you right. do this or that. It's only after the third occasion that she questions his love for her. And once he questions his love for her, then he spills the beans. He tells her, he tells her the true, true uh, secret to his strength. She acts on that. The Philistines capture him. They cut his hair. They gouge out his eyes. Uh, he's forced into labor in the Philistine prison in Judges uh, 16.21. Shortly thereafter, he, he is brought out to uh, entertain the Philistines. says that there are 3,000 Philistines on the roof of the temple, the temple into which he's forced to entertain them. That's got to uh, be a building code violation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the fire marshal is off that day. Yeah. You know, the fire marshal is probably off, you know, still so putting out the fires that Samson said in the fields back exactly. in the uh, Yeah, the fox in 15, tail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, um, so uh, fire marshal aside, uh, you know, their whole, the, the, the building was, you know, beyond capacity of any fire code. Samson asks a little boy or a young servant, uh, we won't get into the whole how to translate an R, to uh, help him... Uh, put his hands next to the pillars of the temple. He doesn't give the kid a heads up. He doesn't say, okay, kid, you're scram, beat it, get out of here. Mm -hmm. I'm about to destroy the house. Every single children's book I've ever read about Samson or every, yeah. every children's movie I've ever read about Samson, they have Samson give the kid up, give the kid a, a heads up, uh, warn the kid. Yeah. Interesting. It's sort of like Noah preaching to his contemporaries, you know, giving them a warning. Um, we've got to, we feel uncomfortable with, with these details. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Samson brings down the temple. He kills himself and 3000 Philistines in the process. Yeah. The narrator says that Samson killed more Philistines in his death than in his life. And that's pretty much yeah. the story of Samson. Yeah, and I, and I want our listeners to to note that each of those details that uh, Jeremy just outlined are picked up in the tradition of Black Samson. 
So, we're, you know, we're not going to go through each of those, but maybe if you want to just highlight a couple of the things that you mentioned just now from the biblical story and then how they were received in later traditions of the Black Samson, that would be, that would be useful. Oh, yeah. So, you know, yeah, and you're right. I did try to hit the, the parts that came up in the tradition. Yeah. The, the overall, I mean, and there are, I don't know how many traditions mm-hmm. we met or how many examples we mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, pretty dense. Uh, but the overwhelming majority talk about Samson in the temple. One of the main things is that in the early decades of the U.S., you know, sort of the, uh, the early decades of the Republic, one of the terms for the federal government or D.C., mm-hmm. a lot of times when we talk about the White House now, uh, mm-hmm. was the Temple of Liberty. Mm-hmm. This goes back to Thomas Paine in 1776. Um, and his advocacy for uh, uh, U.S. independence. And uh, separately, there was this growing tradition of Black Samson. Uh, eventually, then what happened is folks put Black Samson in the Temple of Liberty. So Black Samson represented slavery. The Temple of Liberty represented, I mean, the Temple of Dagon represented, the Philistine Temple represented yeah. the Temple of Liberty. And, you know, and then so that, that image became... Mm-hmm powerfully stamped into sort of the uh, consciousness of these, these questions of race uh, and racial inequality. So that, that was probably the biggest one. But yeah. there, were, there were others. Uh, so, for example, we mentioned the, you know, uh, Stampson's birth mm-hmm. and uh, Judges uh, 13.5, when, they, when the, uh, the angel says, you know, he will begin to deliver his people. That was also sort of associated with folks who uh, fought against racial injustice and inequality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one, one example a lot, of your, a lot of your listeners may know of uh, is uh, Frederick Douglass. So when Frederick Douglass died, I think it was uh, 1895, in some of his eulogies, there were a bunch, some of his eulogies had compared him to Samson and said, though, you know, he didn't completely end all racial inequality, but like Samson, he began and made a, a definite uh, mm. A uh, definite strike, definite blow to that cause. Yeah. yeah. You, you begin in an early part of the book with a lengthy discussion of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's 1942 poem, The Warnings. Of course, this is prior to the Civil War. Um, and I wanted to read a stanza from it because this touches on the, the Temple of Liberty idea. There's a poor blind Samson in this land, shorn of his strength and bound in bonds of steel who may in some grim revel raise his hand and shake the pillars of this common wheel, till the vast temple of our liberties, a shapeless mass of wreck and rubbish lies. So, you know, there you have the image of the vast temple of our liberties and this poor blind Samson in the land. So what's the significance of this portion of the poem and, you know, maybe talk about its legacy a little bit. I thought it was a great study. Yeah. So in 1842, um, what, you know, he, uh, Longfellow published a collection of nine poems, you know, fairly short poems on slavery, hmm. uh, against slavery. Um, so, you know, if the uh, abolitionist cause really sort of uh, took off beginning in the 1830s, this was sort of in the heart of uh, the abolitionist movement. And so he writes his poem and it's interesting. Initially, he didn't think it had much, had much legs. Like he didn't think it would uh, um, catch on. You know, he thought it was yeah. uh, a fairly mild critique, maybe too mild. 
but it did. So that poem became sort of a abolitionist anthem. And you have people quoting it or alluding to it all the time in the late 1840s and you know, throughout the 1850s up until um, the Civil War. Um, and when I say people, like fairly prominent people. So like Stowe, for instance, or Stowe of mm-hmm. Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, she makes several uh, mentions of that um, in her literature. Um, Frederick Douglass is a big Longfellow fan. He quotes, you know, at least alludes to that poem uh, quite a bit. So it isn't just sort of like these sort of fringe circles yeah. um, that are making use of this poem. And then after the Civil War, after the passage of the 13th Amendment, the poem still gains traction. So you have it applied to other issues of racial inequality. So concerns about education and concerns about the use in anti-lynching campaigns Mm -hmm. and other other forms, after the abolition of slavery, other forms of racial uh, injustice. To the point that in um, the 1960s, after the uh, uprising in Watts in LA, um, there's this letter to the editor that was written in Life magazine uh, that quotes that poem huh. and applies it to um, the uprisings that were going on in yeah. the 1960s. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, so the, these things have a long afterlife. And, and one of the surprising portions of your book was that you highlighted some of the ways that even white supremacist literature appealed to the black Samson motif which would not seem to be very self-serving of that movement. What are some of the ways that Samson uh, featured in such literature? Yeah, so the interesting thing is, I mean, the Black Samson image was so well-known that, you know, it was also well-known to folks who weren't invested in uh, the cause of um, abolition. Uh, you know, and so you have, you have that use. Um, you also have, in one of the chapters, we discuss a a figure called uh, Samson of Brandywine. That figure is technically not uh, based on the biblical Samson. But what it was, was a, um, a figure who was created in folklore about the U.S. Revolution. And this folklore by a guy named uh, George Lepard in the 1840s, George Lepard was interested in workers' rights and you know, helping issues of labor reform in, uh, in some you know, horrible conditions in cities like Philadelphia and New York. So what he did was he wrote this folklore about the American Revolution. And in this folklore, he created characters from various ethnic backgrounds who were in the working class. Mm-hmm. But yet in the folklore, they contributed to the, uh, to the war against the British, trying to show that, hey, these, you know, these folks are... Uh, are American patriots. He included a figure named Black Samson, independent of the uh, the biblical tradition and the way that it was portrayed in abolitionist literature, mm. or at least consciously, um, right? I mean, could it- yeah, con- yeah, very yeah. consciously. In mm. fact, to the point where, he, without getting to the weeds too much, you know, he, he said like this isn't oh, that okay. abolitionist Black Samson because <laughs> if he wanted to argue that you know his Black Samson is American patriot, you can't mm. have him as uh, an enslaved person who might threaten the Temple of Liberty. You know, and so that Black Samson, Black Samson Brandywood, a Brandywine, it appears over and over again in, in the late, 18th, late 19th century and is often told in some fairly racist tropes. Uh, you know, so they use a lot of racist language, racist descriptions of this Black Samson. You know, yeah. uh, 
And I mean, it is so interesting because some of these tropes are uh, remain today. So, mm. for instance, when he when describing Samson in battle, Lepard talks about Samson as a as a demonic figure. That same reference was used. We mentioned this in the footnotes mm. um, when um, the officer who murdered Mike Brown mm. in Ferguson. In his testimony, when he described Mike Brown, even though they were both 6'2", they were both the same height, the officer and Mike Brown, yeah. he described Brown as a, as a big black demon, wow. uh, as a demonic figure. You know, so these, these, these tropes have been around for a long time. What you get then in the early 20th century is one of the most influential uh, African-American poets of the 20th, 20th century, uh, Paul Dunbar. He offers a poem about Samson Brandywine, but without the racist tropes to emphasize his uh, patriotism. So, mm-hmm. uh, um, so he sort of uh, rehabilitates this black Samson image, and that catches on in a lot of African-American literature throughout the 20th century. Yeah, and you, you talk throughout the book about the theme of vengeance, um, which is, uh, comes up quite a bit where for African-American writers, and abolitionist writers, this idea of exacting vengeance on those involved in white supremacy and and oppression, Uh, but then also how other white authors picked this up and had, you know, developed this story of a black Samson who, who loved his white master, and when his white master was killed, wanted to avenge his death against the British. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, that's, and that's especially in the whole Brandywine tradition, almost yeah. exclusively to Brandywine tradition of this, this idea of that, you know, the reason that Samson Brandywine is fighting against the British is to avenge his white master, which is a very different reading than you get in some of the memoirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had in 1910 already, 1810, excuse me, 1810, you have a memoir uh, by uh, an enslaved a gentleman, and he he mentioned how he was forced into the uh, Revolutionary Army to fight for his to fight for his slaveholders' freedom. Yeah, and he notes that irony, and you know, and says, "No, um, I thought maybe I could be like Samson and avenge mm. my my enslavement, but yeah. then he then decides oh, I'm not going to go down that that road because that will probably lead to my uh, death." I wanted to just read a quote real quick uh, from from the book. You say the idea that a black Samson figure could represent both an American patriot and a national threat epitomizes how African-Americans are often viewed in the United States. The tension of black Samson as patriot and as threat has never been resolved. So what are um, some of the ways that you see that tension between patriot and threat still persisting today? Yeah, so you get that at the end of the chapter on, on Brandywine. So mm. sort of like the Samson Brandywine, this patriot, the biblical Samson, who is picked up by the abolitionists as sort of this threat to uh, the uh, the nation. And, and, and yeah, that, you know, as we said, like, that remains unresolved tension yeah. uh, in in the U.S. And I don't know as we're any closer to resolving that that yeah. tension between um, between threat and and patriot. Yeah, it re- reminded me when you um, when I read that of a, a book that I I know you and I both appreciate, Kaim Potox, The Chosen, where at the beginning you have you have um, Orthodox Jews who who all of a sudden decide to put a lot of emphasis on playing baseball, and and this is this is during 
you know, the, the beginning of the uh, lead up to and beginning of the Second World War, where Orthodox Jews felt compelled to prove their patriotism. And so they start playing baseball because they were simultaneously viewed as a threat. So you have that kind of tension between threat and patriot in the, the Jewish story, at least as it's presented in The Chosen. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, that's not exclusive to yeah. one particular American experience, uh, definitely, yeah. even if it manifests itself differently uh, yeah. throughout. Yeah. So um, one of the questions that this raised, you know, this is a work of um, reception history in, in some ways. Did you get the sense in your research that the biblical text itself put any constraint on the possible range of ways that Samson was perceived in later eras. So, so in other words, was the Samson tradition evidence that people just use the text to say whatever they want? Or does the, did you get a sense that the text sort of constrains the possibilities as you look through history? That's a great question. I think in the vast, vast majority of cases that we discussed in the book and your know, cases that were left on the cutting room floor, uh, mm-hmm. so to speak, didn't make it into the book, um, yeah. very few were trying to read Judges 13 through 16. Yeah. Most were, you know, uh, focused on a particular moment mm-hmm. in Samson's life, uh, particularly his death in the Philistine temple, but, you know, also his birth narrative and so forth. Yes, yeah, so this um, wasn't a history of... Exegesis. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, all, it's also not always clear that they were referring to the biblical text. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, like a lot of times we know biblical stories not necessarily because of reading the Bible. So sometimes you get, you know, uh, you know you're not really constrained by the biblical text because you're not really deriving a story from the biblical text. Sometimes you're also, we talk about this a little bit in the book, sometimes you're talking about a song based on the Samson story. So, mm-hmm. for instance, uh, Richard Wright, the famed novelist, 20th century novelist, like he mentioned Samson a few times in uh, some of his writings, uh, but they're almost always based on a traditional song that was recorded in the 1920s uh, about Samson and Delilah. Mm-hmm. So it's not exactly, so he's not engaging the biblical text directly, but engaging the tradition that had taken sure. hold by that point. So, you know, it's a, it's really sort of hard to, you know, in, in terms of constraint, it really sort of depends on, you know, um, on what, what part of the tradition yeah. they, uh, a particular person is engaging. Uh, for instance, like another one that we uh, mentioned in the book, um, Samson's Riddle. Huey P. Newton, the uh, co-founder, or one of the founders of the Black Panther Party, said Samson was his favorite biblical character. And you initially think, if you know anything about the Black Panthers, you know, maybe a knee-jerk reaction would be, oh, because Samson you know, engaged in some militant um, yeah. defense. You know? But that's actually not the reason that uh, Huey P. Newton uh, says that Samson is a favorite biblical character. It's because Samson uses riddles, and hmm. he respected Samson's intellect. Now, his particular attraction to Samson wasn't constrained by, okay, a close exegesis hmm. of... Judges 13 through 16, but more an aberration for how, how Samson used his intellectual abilities for resistance. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, switch gears for a moment here and do a speed round with you. And uh, since you're at Temple University in Philadelphia, I thought, I thought I'd start out with a couple of Philadelphia questions. So what's your estimation 
of the percentage of the U.S. population, this is a ballpark figure, that lives within a two-hour flight of Philly? 60%? Exactly. Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's that's pretty impressive. All right. All right. You you are you are a true Philadelphian, although you said you grew up in LA, right? Yes, yes. Okay. You've had you've had a conversion. Conversion might be a strong word. I, yeah. I've become an Eagles fan. Okay. Um as far as that. I think although I would say I was re- I was I very much became aware of what it meant to live in Philadelphia. Um mm-hmm. the first night I was in Philadelphia. I was walking around Center City and I passed by this bar. And as I passed by, this gentleman came out of the bar looking with, with rather urgent pace. Yeah. Um, and he was wearing a Pittsburgh Penguin sweater. Hmm. Um, oh boy, that's dangerous. Took a few more paces and, you know, and then just started a dead sprint down the street. <laughs> sure enough, about, you know, not more than five seconds later, four or five folks with Philadelphia Flyers sweaters came out of the same bar and started chasing him uh, down the street. Now, I don't know how that story ended because I did stick around to see how it ended. Yeah. Uh, But that was my introduction. That's my very first night in Philadelphia. Well, it was only right that they chase him. I mean, that's... that's, uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes perfect sense for Philadelphia. You know, uh, the fair weather fans in LA would ever muster that kind of passion for for that, uh, that scenario. Yeah, and as we talked about before uh, we started recording, congrats to uh, you as an LA sports fan <laughs> as well with the Dodgers and the Lakers. So yeah, first time since '88. Um, okay, so Philadelphia is the first blank, and it's not capital. Okay, in the United States, is the first blank in the United States. So not not capital. Real fan base, I'll say. <laughs> well, that might be true. Uh, it's also the first World Heritage site. In the oh, United really? States. Huh, yeah, I didn't know that. Very interesting. Um, who are some of your scholarly mentors? I would say, in terms of mentors, mm-hmm. Dennis Olson, my uh, doctoral advisor at, uh, at PTS, mm-hmm. um, he, uh, I dedicated, I did a commentary on the Book of Ruth, I think I mentioned that mm-hmm. in the intro. Uh, I dedicated that to him because uh, I think he really taught me how to read a biblical narrative. I would say he's, you know, my greatest teacher in that regard, yeah. you know, with the, you know, obviously with the usual disclaimer about, you know, family, uh, yeah. but he's a, you know, he's a, sure. he would be my mentor and he still teaches at a PTS uh, to this, uh, to this day. You know, if, if there's any students at Princeton Seminary who are listening to this broadcast, you know, if you leave the seminary without taking a class uh, with Dennis Olson beyond the intro to class, you're seminary experience is diminished. So yeah. I definitely uh, highlight him. Um, the other, of course, Nisha Jr. Um, yeah. If you end your career having never read anything Nisha's written, um, then yeah, it's a seriously diminished uh, yeah. career, I'd say. Yeah, excellent. Um, what's your uh, favorite spot to visit in Philly? So when someone comes to visit uh, Philadelphia and they want to go somewhere, where do you take them? Uh, you know, non-COVID times yeah 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 <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah you take them into my apartment and lock the door yeah. um yeah yeah um so There's usually, a room where you'll quarantine for two weeks <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um usually i find there's like the standard requests of pat and genos mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. i'm not sure if that's like my first choice but that is usually yeah. uh you know people want to get cheesesteaks so you know uh 
I uh, take it to Panagino's, I would say would be the, uh, the standard request. Uh, but, I mean, folks like to see the Liberty Bell mm-hmm. um, and so forth and so on. Um, Philly games are also popular, you know, and you tend to get a little bit more of the Philly experience. Yeah. As long as, especially if you stay for the latter, for latter innings when uh, a certain amount of alcohol has been consumed, mm. uh, you, you tend to get the Philly experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is there. its own distinctive thing. Now, did, I don't know when you were first in Philadelphia. Were you there when there was Veterans Stadium? I, I came there in 2000, 2007. Oh, so, so it was yeah. a, they had new Phillies. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. Veterans Stadium was there, the place where the Eagles and the Phillies used Ooh. to play. And it was an awful, yeah. awful stadium. It was pure utilitarian. No no yeah. sense of an ambiance or, you know, a distinctive kind of American baseball field. And and when the Phillies played, you could look on the field and still see the the yard lines for the football field underneath the AstroTurf, which is itself <laughs> a horrible thing. Yeah. And I mean, it, it was a horrendous stadium. And it just kind of fit the sort of gritty... Uh, Philadelphia sports environment. Absolutely, some of my some of my senior colleagues will wax nostalgic uh, yeah. about you know you know about that uh, that particular stadium. Yeah, exactly. And the old one where the Sixers used to play. What was that called? The, um, Spectrum. Uh, Spectrum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, that that one might still be around, but that was another terrible stadium. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The old Spectrum. Um, uh, what's uh, one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? I don't know if it's an, so much an idea as much mm-hmm. as a practice. The proliferate, proliferation of handbooks, reference volumes, encyclopedias. Mm. Uh, yes, I would there, say are, that, there are you know, a few. Yeah, I would say that needs to, to die. How do we all get pulled into these things? I need well, to say no to them. That's another thing. Yeah, exactly. Saying yes to them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, this is this is me having written a commentary, but you know, um, I find that it tends to arrest the development of the field. And I think it was uh, it was Carol Newsom. Was she was she your mentor at a? Uh, she was not my supervisor. David Peterson was, but, okay. but I, I count her among them because I yeah. studied with her. But yes, I remember many years ago. I remember I was in graduate school at the time. I uh, went to a, I think it was a Proverbs. I went to a panel on Proverbs, and I have no interest in Proverbs. But I had a panel on Proverbs, and uh, the theme for the panel was recent commentaries on the book of proverbs mm. so it was like an all-star lineup of like wisdom literature folks you know yeah. uh you know folks at top of their game had written commentaries all within the past five or ten years on the book of proverbs and one of the respondents was carol newsom and you know at least as i remember it i don't know if she actually mm. said it or not but at least <laughs> what i remember is her getting up there and saying you know these are all these commentaries are all fine and good um and that's wonderful but 90% of the material they cover is the same. Mm. Um, and how much more so would the field of Proverbs study be advanced if instead of writing commentaries, these top minds in Proverbs that are seen here today wrote articles or yeah. monographs yeah. on Proverbs. Instead um, of burying all their insights in the middle of a commentary, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, mm. and, and, and those insights you know, are, you know, 
10%, you know, very deep within the commentary, right, 10% being right. generous. So I remember the time, you know, thinking to myself, you know, okay, I'm never going to write a commentary. I vow never write a commentary, yeah. you know, but uh, you're only as faithful to your vows as your choices. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> once someone invited me to yeah. write a commentary, I did, but I'll never write a, I'll never write a commentary again. I'll, okay. You're done I'll with them. Done with um, yeah. What's it's the most sig- significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? The last 50 years, the most significant. Yeah, so we're going back to 1970. Yeah, I'm deeply biased, but I would say my co-author's uh, Womanist Biblical Interpretation. Um, I think that says so much about the field, mm-hmm. um, over, especially over the last 70 years, you know, yeah. from the mid-70s, mm. uh, especially in terms of the state of biblical studies, uh, not only about um, the state of uh, womanist uh, biblical interpretation, mm. uh, but also uh, feminist biblical interpretation. I think another one would be Jacob Milgram's three-volume three commentary on Leviticus. Mm. What that says, if one starts looking at that 10%, so to speak, um, you know, what that says about not only the state of Pentecostal studies, mm. but issues of sexuality, mm. uh, issues of gender, so on and so mm. forth. Uh, I think that's that's, um, I think it's limiting to say it's, you know, it's, a, it's only the concern of folks who are interested in uh, mm. the Pentateuch and Pentateuchal formation. Yeah, yeah I, but right. I, I should say, by the way, I'm, I'm limiting it to specifically material written by folks whose primary training is in biblical studies. Yeah. So, you know, like, so Robert Alter and those stuff, I'm, you know, I'm yeah. not including yeah. them within this uh, Absolutely. purview. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, good choices there. Uh, Milgram stuff's definitely... Uh, you know, some nice light reading for people if they're interested um, <laughs> in, a, in a quick read. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and wh- how about the book that's had the biggest impact on you as a scholar? So ruling out the ones you just mentioned. Hmm. Yeah, I, I suppose I should have saved Nisha's for, uh, <laughs> uh, for that. Um, I think in terms of a book that I encountered early on mm-hmm. that was eye-opening for me at the time, I'm not sure if this was standing the test of time, but at the time, uh, I remember the summer before I entered uh, the MDiv program at Princeton Seminary, reading John Levinson's collection of essays titled mm. The Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament, and I think it's historical criticism. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just how he engaged figures like Von Rod, uh, mm. how he engaged, you know, how he engaged sort of like the intellectual history of the discipline. Over time, I think I wouldn't necessarily agree with much of what he said in that volume, Mm -hmm. but in terms of self-critique of the field, that I think was an important influence Mm -hmm. on me, even if I've, you know, uh, abandoned that, you know, uh, the specifics of his arguments for a long time. So, for instance, even in Black Samson, there, there, we mentioned this in passing, like in the first Mm -hmm. page or two, but um, there is a lot of reception history done on Samson yeah. in biblical studies. It is, ast- it is astounding how, despite volumes put out by, you know, prominent scholars like Gunn, like Exum and others, mm-hmm. um, the interpretive traditions of black Samson are all but ignored. Mm. I don't even think they're even mentioned, you know, and mm. so, you know, this, in some ways, our, you know, our book is saying like, you know, you, and I think that's one of the sort of implicit critiques of the book, actually, now I'm thinking about it. Sorry, this is very moving away from no, the no, speed route. Yeah, <laughs> um, go for it. But is 
a lot of reception history still tends to uh, focus on um, white cultural productions, mm. be they American or European, when there are other cultural productions out there. Yeah. Um, and so it's, in some ways, this book is one example of yeah. something that's been overlooked within history, within specific reception history in yeah. biblical studies. White cultural productions is a good segue to the next section because um, one of the things we do, I've done a couple times now, is ask guests to give a book endorsement or, or to give a book rating. And I use a w- random word generator on, on Google to, to just give me a word, then I plug that into Amazon Books, and whatever comes up first is the book that I want you to give a rating on, having not read it. So the random word that came up was liberal. And then uh, the book is uh, Liberal Priv- Privilege, Joe Biden and the Democrats' Defense of the Indefensible by Don- Donald Trump Jr. Um, and I'll read you the first uh, paragraph from it. I never thought I would write one political book, let alone two, but after seeing the activist media do such a disservice to our country, I had to fight and write. I have to supply you with the truth because I would not be able to live with myself until these frauds are exposed and the facts are out there. Okay, so that's the kind of stuff you get in this book. Uh, out of five stars, what do you what do you give it? I'd have to say probably one star. Okay. All right, back to the book. Uh, just a couple of things I want to touch on before we wrap this up. Um, you talk about this idea of a Samson complex. So I was just wondering if you could talk about what the Samson complex is. Yeah, so Samson complex, that's the title of one of the chapters. And we took that term, uh, Samson complex, from a statement that was made at something called um, the Hanover discussions. Mm. And what these discussions were, were sort of some, um, at the time, some more senior African-American intellectuals and fairly prominent folks. Like they included Ralph Ellison, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, they included uh, folks who ran the experiments that were used in Brown v. Board of Education. So fairly prominent folks who were in support of integration. And one of their concerns was what they saw as this sort of militant strand of black power. Hmm. Um, you know, in the late 1960s, early 1970s. So they were concerned about, you know, uh, the Black Panthers, for instance, you know, uh, folks like H. Uh, H. Rap Brown, uh, folks like that, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And they were sort of dismissive of them as sort of, you know, these sort of hot-headed young radicals who would, you know, uh, they're, they're going to do, nothing, do nothing productive other than get themselves killed right. uh, by their militant taxes. They were very dismissive and, you know, and very characterizing. So they characterized them as having a Samson problem complex. Mm. Uh, and they said, you know, the Samson complex is, you know, you know these, these overly militant uh, radicals who, um, like Samson, are, you know, going to do nothing constructive, but just get themselves, you know, uh, mm. killed. So they rather, you know, uh, um, they were sort of dismissive of that strand. Now, truth be told, as I mentioned before, folks like Huey, uh, Huey P. Newton like he was interested in the Samson complex, not because of self-destruction, but because of Samson's use of Samson's intellectual role model. So there was a lot of characterizing uh, going on. But it's sort of, that, that chapter sort of discusses sort of the difference in strategies in the 1960s yeah. and early 1970s between yeah. folks who would have a more sort of gradual um, approach to the legal system, like say mm-hmm. the NAACP and stuff like that, mm-hmm. uh, towards handling racial inequality and folks uh, who were advocating for a more yeah. Uh, militant stance. Yeah, and of course, um, 
not only Samson himself, but also you mentioned that the little boy who led Samson to the pillars became someone that was discussed and identified with to some extent uh, around this question of, you know, is it is it necessary for some blood to be spilled for this movement? Um, how do we relate to violence? And then you mentioned how MLK uh, addresses uh, Samson as a sort of negative example of this sort of personal vindictiveness and violence um, in contrast to the the ways of Jesus. So interesting how he's kind of, he became a kind of figure for talking about those questions around violence or the use of violence. Yeah. So like, so in that case, like, so um, King gives a sermon where he contrasts Jesus's uh, prayer on the cross, you know, uh, father forgive them for they know not what they do with, Samson's dying prayer mm. of vengeance for his eyes. Yeah. Um, you know, and right. uh, now granted that way we won't, we don't get this. We don't get to this in the book uh, mm. because we contrast that with Malcolm X's use of Samson imagery. Mm. Um, but after uh, Malcolm X's death, King um, takes on a fairly radical tone. So mm. in a way I wouldn't want to sort of present stereotypically King as, sure. you know, uh, as, you know, this sort of, you know, nonviolent pacifist and, you know, and Malcolm X as this, you know, as right. radical, you know, there, right. there are more points of conversion. Um, yeah. a, a scholar worth mentioning on this regard, uh, Pinnell, um, Joseph at, uh, University of Texas has done mm. some great work along these uh, lines. Oh, great. That's helpful. Uh, what's the name again? Uh, Joseph, uh, last name, Dr. Joseph. He's at, uh, okay. University of Texas. Okay. He, he recently wrote a book called, uh, The Shield and the Sword, uh, which mm. talks about, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. It talks about how they were actually converging before uh, Malcolm X assassination in '65. Mm. Just you know, despite sort of the, the popular contrast between yeah. King on the one hand and Malcolm X on the other. Um, and, and I really like the quote from Albert Cleage Jr., who's a minister in Detroit, who talks about various black revolutionaries using the Samson image, and he and he says, normally people would have frowned on him. They would have called him a hoodlum. They wouldn't have listened to him, listed him in their religious scriptures as a judge of Israel. So, so there's this kind of fact that has to be reckoned with that Samson is among the judges of Israel. You know, he is listed as one of the leaders, but yet he's such a uh, complicated figure. <laughs> it's really true. So yeah, and, you know, and one of his, and one of the points that he's making there is like, so, you know, in the context of the um, late 1960s, mm. saying like, you know, these, these kids these days who are dismissive of, yeah. you know, whose message you're not listening to, they're going to be remembered on the right side of history. Yeah. You know, and what parallels that might have with today, mm -hmm. I'll leave others to, uh, to mm. make. Uh, it is interesting, you know, just to even, when we were writing that particular yeah. section, uh, it was during uh, Kaepernick's mm. um, banishment from the league, yeah, or initial banishment from the league, mm -hmm. I should say. You know, it's it is interesting to see how mm. how he's received today versus even just a few years ago. Yeah, we we have to probably bring things to a close here, but uh, just wondering if you could leave us with what you consider maybe one of the most striking or surprising finds of this of of this study. Or, or perhaps what you hope readers will glean by looking at these traditions about Black Samson. Um, I'll take that. As, I'll take that in two parts. Uh, okay. In terms of what surprised me is touching on some, something that you brought up before, just the fluidity 
mm-hmm. of uses of Samson tradition. So, yeah. for instance, we have this chapter um, on Samson and early 20th century labor movements. Mm. When I first started researching the book with, uh, with uh, Dr. Junior, that was probably an avenue I didn't see coming. Like, I would yeah. have never yeah. connected Samson with uh, labor movements in the U.S. But it was actually a very rich and complex and nuanced discussion Mm -hmm. of how Samson relates to it. So in terms of what surprised me the most in terms of the research, I would Mm -hmm. probably highlight uh, that. Get the book and read it to see what I I mean, of course. In terms of takeaways, in terms of what I would like someone to to, um, take away from, from reading the book, within... Within biblical, if if you come at it with an interest in biblical studies, mm. um, just a reminder what biblical studies has ignored. Even biblical studies that purport to have a commitment to reception history, and you know, in that regard, um, read the footnotes too. Uh, we know this this mm. one of the major issues when we crafted the book was uh, what belongs in the main text. And mm-hmm. what belongs to the footnotes, um, and there's a lot. There's, there's almost like a separate monograph almost <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the footnotes. So let's say you know, yeah. uh, for more info, definitely read the uh, the footnotes. Excellent. Well, uh, Dr. Jeremy Skipper, uh, everyone, thank you so much for taking your time to talk today about Black Samson, the untold story of an American icon, a book that you co-authored with Nisha Jr. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.